1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
0: Welcome to episode 401 with my guest, James Murray. Uh, i Paul Gilmartin. This is the Metal Illness Happy Hour. Uh, we talk about metal shit, but I'm not a therapist I'm a former stand-up comedian. I hosted a TV show for a, a bunch of years called uh, Dinner and Movie on TBS. Uh, so essentially what I'm saying is I'm a jackass that cooked chicken on basic cable. But I'm a recovering nut job. And so I have some opinions about the crazy that goes on in our heads. Um, our episode today is... Uh, You know, I love all the episodes that that we put up. Um, But today's episode, um, I was in Belfast and I felt like I needed to go to a support group meeting. And the only meeting that was available was in the Protestant area of Belfast. And from what I had learned talking to people, there's still a lot of animosity between Catholics and Protestants, despite there being a long-standing peace agreement between the two. And there is a clearly divided peace wall between the Catholic and Protestant area. And on the Catholic side um, is Falls Road, and on the Protestant side is Shankill Road. I mean just the name Shankill Road. There there were at the height of the troubles as they called the violence between the Catholics and Protestants. Um there was a group of Protestant terrorists who call were dubbed the Shankill butchers and they would abduct Catholics, torture them, kill them and then cut them up. And the only meeting that was available <laughs> was on Shank Hill Road. For those of you that, that don't know, you you can be pretty easily identified as Catholic or Protestant by your name. Not only your first name, but your last name. Um, Protestants tend to have either English or Scottish-sounding names and Catholics. Obviously, I uh, usually have Irish sounding names. and my name is a very clearly Irish Catholic sounding name. Now, true, I was there as a tourist and I knew 99% chance nothing is going to happen to me. But I was worried that uh, I was a, a, even though I don't practice Catholicism, that I was going to a Protestant area and um it couldn't have been lovelier this this meeting they were so welcoming and kind and funny and i deep down i knew it was going to be that way and i didn't expect the hatred at the meeting itself i was worried about getting in and out of a cab maybe i would get lost etc cetera, etc cetera. um So, the speaker at that meeting is the guest of today's episode. And I was so struck by the... Well, I'll let you hear the episode and you'll see what it was that I was struck by about him and his story. And I also want to mention I got a tweet from somebody last week that... Um, took exception to me having uh, somebody from the IRA on um, as a a guest, and they seemed to think that that was me, um, you know, giving a thumbs up to all the things that the IRA had done and that I had called, uh, I'd used the word freedom fighter fighter to describe the IRA. Um, While I do consider um the IRAs uh, caused to be one of fighting oppression, I'm greatly opposed to the manner in which they did a lot of their uh, rebellion and fighting. And I thought that that was pretty clear in the episode when my guest, who is a former IRA soldier, volunteer, whatever you want to call it, said that he was opposed to the targeting of civilians um and i thought it was pretty clear that i would also also be opposed to that and he took responsibility for that and i do consider what they uh did when they targeted civilians i do consider that to be terrorism but the initial initial fight for freedom that the ira started um in the late 60s early 70s Um, I do consider that to be a fight for freedom, and there is my two cents. I am coming to Minneapolis again, October 13th. It's a Saturday, and we're going to do two shows. It's going to be at Sisyphus Brewery again, and I'll put the links to all this stuff up on the website. Uh, At 5 o'clock, I'm going to do a show with uh, Chell Borgen, who is a really funny stand-up comedian, Um, and... Then at 8 o'clock, uh, Nora McInerney, uh the host of Terrible Thanks for Asking, is going to make a return visit. And this time, instead of her sharing her story, which we did on a previous episode with her, uh, she and I are going to exchange fears and loves, and we are going to take questions from the audience. And also hear some fears and loves from audience members. So if you are the type that likes to uh, participate or you just want to come in general, um, that show is going to be at eight o'clock. All right. Let's get to it. This is an awful moment. Oh, and uh, most of the surveys of this, uh, this today's episode are going to be people's, people recounting their experiences of being uh, hospitalized in, uh, Psych wards. A couple of other uh, surveys as well, but uh, there was just a really interesting um, batch of surveys filled out on that topic and some really beautiful ones. Um, Some painful ones, obviously, but also some really uh, bittersweet ones. Uh, So, uh, this is an awful moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Surrounded by Gray. Uh, she writes, growing up, my mother was addicted to meth. I didn't really know until I was about 14. Once I found out, my whole world came crashing down. My mother was my everything. I looked up to her and wanted to be like her. I didn't notice all the signs of her drug use, and I guess I thought the way she was acting was normal. Which, once I became an adult, I realized it wasn't normal, and it was pretty fucked up. Anyway, there was this incident that happened when I was about 13. I thought it was funny at one point, but it is pretty messed up now that I'm writing it and thinking about it again. So there would have been a, there was about six people who lived in our house. We lived with my grandparents and I had four siblings. Two of them lived with my dad and would visit part time. Every time we got a treat like soda or fast food or anything that was out of the normal, we would always put it in the fridge and cause a scene when someone took our food. On this particular day, I had a 20 ounce Hawaiian punch bottle that I was saving for later. Later came and I couldn't find my stupid Hawaiian punch. I looked everywhere and found it in my mom's room and the trash with the same amount of soda left in it that I had left. So my dumbass gets it out of the trash, thinking they threw it away by mistake, and I drank the whole bottle. Well, later that night, I was up at midnight looking for the cordless phone outside. I wasn't tired, I was full of energy. I found out, after my mom had asked me about the Hawaiian Punch and whether I drank it or not, found out that the soda that I drank was used as bong water for her meth bong. So yeah, I was high on meth at 13, acting a fool looking for a stupid cordless phone in the middle of the night. Nevertheless, I learned not to drink or take anything out of the trash. (laughs) Thank you for that. Uh, one of the sponsors for today's episode is betterhelp.com. Uh, I've raved about them many times. The feedback from you guys, uh, who are using it is uh, fantastic. They offer online counseling. Uh, you can communicate in a variety of ways through video, email, audio, live text, um, you name it. So, uh, Check it out. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. Uh, and then this is a uh, just a very brief psych ward experience uh, recounted by... Shannon, and uh, she was hospitalized for an eating disorder. And describe your experience. She writes, it was intense, full of emotion at every point. Eating disorder patients are kept in a room of the unit where most patients are 80 plus struggling with dementia. There was a part of it that was extremely comforting though, being cared for, being able to snuggle up in my little bed and rest, be at peace, not have to think about any commitments or anyone else because I have the most real excuse that no one will ever deny. I'm in the hospital. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. <laughs> I'm here with James Murray, who I met last night uh, at a support group meeting. I decided to uh, to go to one, and you were the speaker, and I was so moved by you just sharing your story and your honesty and um, everything, I invited James to to come be on the podcast and he's been kind enough or stupid enough to trust me. And so here we are in, in Belfast in my hotel room. And uh, where do we start with your story? You're how old? Uh coming up on forty-nine on the thirtieth of July. So it's really my birthday. Well, apologies in advance. <laughs> <laughs> uh and you've been sober how long?
1: Uh three and a half years now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um let's start with the the story the 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 story that people in belfast might know of uh what you encountered
1: yeah well sort of back in uh, 1992 you know the troubles were pretty bad you would have an awful lot of uh you know we would call it tit-for-tat killings mm-hmm. where like the ira would kill a protestant mm-hmm. protestants would kill a catholic and stuff like that there and uh you know, it was usually taxi drivers or security forces and then
0: being killed or killing?
1: Oh, oh, uh being both okay. Both really like uh but then there was a pretty horrendous attack on a bookmakers, which is a TAB. Uh, which off, stands for off track uh a bookmaker's their turf accountants, but it's in America it would be off track betting. Right. You know, it's completely legal, but the, a month before the shooting of my office there was an attack on a Catholic bookmakers on the Omo Road and five people were killed and from that on I just was waiting for it to actually happen so it was the 14th of the 11th 1992 and
0: and you uh, were raised Catholic
1: yeah okay yeah but but the uh, <laughs> the irony of all ironies is I'm a Catholic my wife's a Protestant, and we got married on the 12th of July, which is a bone of contention. Yes. But, uh, yeah, uh, so, like, you know, my upbringing, uh, I had both Catholic and Protestant friends, but on the, f- uh, yeah, it was the 14th uh, of the 11th, 1992, and the next thing is, is there had been a, an attack in Coleraine where the the IRA had burnt down some shops. Mm. So at 3.55 on a Saturday the door opened of, of our office and there was like say maybe 40 people in it and uh, it was members of the UFF which was the Ulster Volunteer Force stood in the doorway with an AK-47 and blasted into a, you know, a room that might have been say maybe 25 feet by maybe say 50 feet and it was just basically full of like older mm-hmm. men Uh, ...fired off two magazines... ...then threw in a hand grenade... ...and you know... ...it was carnage... ...like three people were killed... ...there was 36 other people... ...were injured and stuff like that... ...and then the next day... ...you know I'll never forget... ...sort of... ...you know like... ...obviously there was... ...it was just mayhem... It's like being in a war scene... ...and I remember... ...going to bed that night... And I remember I woke up, and there was a millisecond where it was like a dream. And then I realized that it happened. And, you know, then after that, I ended up having to carry three coffins in one day. And, you know, that can trigger an awful lot of rage. And, you know, it did, but...
0: uh, And and the previous um, bookmaking attack had been against Catholics as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just because in, in Northern Ireland... You know, in a Catholic area, you would have a lot of Catholics gathered in
0: one place. So they're just looking for, be it a pub, exactly. Or a yeah,
1: or yeah. So like it, it was a it, funeral. It was in yeah. It, it was in our office, but uh, you know, it was kind of it was kind of weird because you know, being the person I am, <laughs> I decided I wasn't going to let it terrorize me,
0: and is I, there is there a choice?
1: Yeah, well, you know, some people, you know, I got shot on a Saturday and went to work on a Monday. Where you know, did you get shot? In the leg, yeah. and uh, I made a conscious decision to that it wasn't going to be terrorized.
0: Did you think you were going to die when you got shot? Uh,
1: I didn't even notice. Uh, like it was the adrenaline and stuff yeah. and getting people in and out of ambulances. I didn't even notice I'd been shot until a policeman actually pointed out I was bleeding. But you know, that's kind of a, some part irrelevant, right? But. The the crazy thing, and and it was kind of one of the things that actually helped my recovery, was, cause that didn't come to many, many years later, but uh, mm-hmm. after a month of this going on, my dad uh, asked me to go and see a, a priest that was a family friend, and uh, I went over, and this guy wasn't your normal priest, you know, and... Mm-hmm. I remember going over to see him and I was the angriest man in the world. And and I'd been to see a fortune teller, which was even weirder before this. And the fortune teller had told me there was going to be death and murder and destruction and you're not going to die and the tarot cards and all this here. And it actually turned out three weeks later that the shooting (coughs) happened and he told me about a red car. There was a red car used and it was all pretty freaky. But when I went over to see this relation who was a priest... I was the angriest man in the world, and I remember screaming at him in, uh, in his priest's house, saying, like, where the fuck was your God? And the crazy thing that happened was, which I didn't see coming, he actually turned around and uh, I says, do you believe in tarot cards? And he says, yeah, of course I do. And this really threw me. <laughs> I thought, what, what are you talking about, you're a Catholic priest? And he just explained to me about how there's good and evil, and you have free will, and that I I couldn't hate these people because of the fact they weren't operating under free will, and this kind of was a crazy concept for me, but,
0: you How, know, how were they not operating under free will?
1: He, he was saying that, you know, the same way that, that you know, they lost their free will, because that I couldn't hate them because that you know, that there was an element of evil involved in all of this and, you know, that really freaked me out but I, I had an absolutely crazy experience the next day that uh, you got to remember that I was incredibly, incredibly angry that I then, he took me into the church the next day and uh, he brought me onto the altar and, you know, he started praying and talking in tongues and he put his hands on my head until the day I die. I will never forget it. He f- it f- quite literally felt like this man's hands were going to burn through my skull. Even to the fact that afterwards I phoned my younger brother and says to him something really weirds happened to me. Whatever you do, never ever go into that church with Father Michael and never ever let him bless you. So later on in my life, when I was absolutely broken with alcoholism, that you know, and and I went to this recovery group and, you know, they mentioned about a higher power. Mm-hmm. Like, I was so many million miles away from it, but I did always go back to that experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've had other further experiences in life where I came to understand that, you know, that Father Michael was right. Like, I went to Auschwitz because I, I wanted to find out how that human beings can be so utterly inhumane to other human beings. And when you go to Auschwitz, you can feel it. You know, like if I go to my recovery group, I can feel the power of good. But when you go to a place like Auschwitz, you feel the opposite. You feel Mm. this oppressive, oppressive evil. And, you know, when I went to Auschwitz, I I asked a question of this Polish, uh, you know, tour guide. And I said but like, you know, because you've got to imagine that, like, they killed a million people there, so people like my age must have got up every morning and kissed their wife and their kids, you know, off to work. And they must have come back and complained and went, you know, flip me, that furnace was broken or we had to, you know. Mm. So, like, what happens to the human being?
0: Um, that they can just compartmentalize that e- exactly. and go about their job sweeping e- the ashes out. E- exactly. And,
1: yeah. You know, and I, I find that a really... Healing thing going to Auschwitz and realizing, you know, that inside every human there is absolute good, but inside every human, myself included, there can be absolute evil. And you know that 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 was a a really big eye opening thing, and I I quite literally couldn't have my back to a door. Mm -hmm. You know, I would always be looking at doors and stuff like that. After it happened. Yeah. Equally, like, uh, you know, that uh, I I was approached by, you know, organizations here in Northern Ireland, you know, to try, like, revenge. Mm -hmm. You know, but even then I realized, what is that going to achieve, me going and killing somebody else? Right. You're just keeping that cycle going. But, yeah, like, I've got to look back at it and, you know, that, the hard part was the hardest part, the hardest part in all of that, and it, it like it would always sort of not not so much be with me now because, you know, I, I, I don't regret the past and I haven't shut the door on it, but the bit that was the hardest to take was going to the, the the wakes of the people who had been murdered. You know, you go to somebody's died in a car crash and stuff like that, that's sad but you go to the wake of somebody who's been ripped away from a family, you know, that's a different thing, you know, that that level of hatred. But the crazy thing was that, you, you know, growing up in Northern Ireland, I, I then had to leave Northern Ireland, mm. not because I was... But, like, everything became... It didn't matter if it was a, a soldier got killed by the IRA or it was a Catholic got killed, or a Protestant got killed. Every time somebody got killed, I went back in my head to the wake. Mm. So it didn't matter. It didn't matter you know, which organization killed which. All that mattered to me was that family and that feeling of loss and stuff like that there. that That was probably the hardest bit. I really did feel guilty that I had survived. You know that, mm. and the, and you're so powerless. You, you know, <laughs> but then to go on and find out I have an addiction and powerless over it too. Yeah. You know, but Edited yeah, to the list. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, that that bit w- was was tricky. You know, and then I took myself off around the world for two years, which was brilliant. Mm. You know, I, I did enjoy that, but <laughs> like at that stage, I was to, you know I managed to mm. drink my entire way around the world. But yeah, just doing that. But, um, yeah, but for, for me, I, I've got to say that the biggest turning point in my entire life was sobriety. You, you know, that part there has been the most wonderful thing in my entire existence. Mm-hmm. You,
0: you, know. you know, One of the things that struck me, uh, you know, when I saw you last night and you were sharing your story, was the joy... That being of service and helping people who are new in the fellowship uh, brings you because your face would just light up and you know after why is my phone ringing uh, and uh, after the the meeting was over, uh, your car was you gave me a ride home and your car was filled with people that you're helping and I can't help but think that that is a huge part of what brings you closer to your higher power, fills you with esteem, and gives you the choice to do W-W. You know, what What would Jesus do? Yeah. When you're feeling good about yourself, yeah. it's easier yeah. to make the moral choice.
1: That The more that I have got involved in my own recovery, the more I have felt that good, like... To the part where, uh, you know, as I was saying last night, that uh, as part of my recovery I went to the grave of, of the guy who actually did the shooting. And, you know, it's pretty well known because, you know, his, they give him a nickname of Top Gun. And they gave him the nickname of Top Gun because every year there was an award for killing the most amount of Catholics. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he he was given this award and... Was he in jail at that point?
0: Or? No, 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 no. So no. it was just underground. It was known who had done yeah, this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but, uh, yeah and yeah. and it was was it because the RUC was kind of in oh, no, 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 no.
1: It was, it was no, no. It was more just with with that organization
0: that they did this. But but if you could know who it was that shot you, how could the police, who should be investigating this, not know that?
1: Well, you know, there's all the thing about collusion with the security forces and stuff like that. and You know, obviously it has gone on. They've had so many inquiries and stuff like that. But, you know, for me on a personal level, uh, I actually sort of put the name of our uh, shop into Wikipedia Mm -hmm. and it came up and I then, you know, read about this guy and I found out where he was buried. And uh, I then went and bought flowers and went up to this guy's grave, and it's probably one of the most healing things I've ever experienced. How long ago was this? This was about a month ago. And, yeah, about about two weeks ago. And just to go up to the guy's grave and stand there, and weirdly, you know, or very sadly, he he died of a drugs overdose. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to be standing there, looking at the grave of somebody who had died of an illness that could kill me, and to have no hatred for this guy and to sit and pray the Our Father and, like, the words of that prayer became so apparent to me. You know, forgive those who have trespassed against you and, you know, keep me away from temptation but deliver me from evil. And I really did genuinely have... I I ended up travelling around the world for a couple of years and in 1993 Pulp Fiction came out and actually, the bit in Pulp Fiction with the, uh, where Samuel L. Johnson's standing there and the guy comes out with a hand cannon and blasts away at him, mm-hmm. and there's all the bullet holes in the wall behind him. Mm. I had exactly the same experience. Where I was behind a wooden counter, there was all these bullet holes. I mean, I, I phoned my father and told him that I was in, you know, don't come up to the office, there's been a shooting, because it literally was rivers of blood. And I'm not saying that, to be, yeah. you know, it, it, that's what it was like. Mm. And I told my dad not to come up, and he came up and he saw where the bullet holes were. And he says, where were you? And I went, there. And I remember the two of us looking at it and going, it was a miracle. But the weird thing was, I was obviously still drinking in 1992, and the first thing that dawned on me uh, <laughs> when we were in New York in Times Square was we went to the cinema. I knew nothing about Pulp Fiction. But the thing that I do remember was that they served alcohol in in uh, in cinemas, mm-hmm. and I thought, God, I'm going to move to America. This place is fantastic. <laughs> but it was the craziest thing to see that, and it was actually even crazier looking back on my life now. That you know, in that movie, that Samuel L. Jackson yeah. then turns around and says, "No, I'm sorry. You know, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to find a more peaceful way to get through my life." And and that has been my experience. Like the. The more I've turned towards my sobriety, the more peace I have got and you know, to be able to stand there at that guy's grave and pray for him and I noticed he was a father to pray for his, his uh his son and just to feel this absolute feeling of peace and as I said last night I then turned around <laughs> and looked at the grave facing it and because the sun was coming from behind it, the only thing I could see at the bottom of the grave was thy will be done. And I ended up looking up to heaven, going, "Okay, God, I get it." I went to get my phone.
0: Is that because that's a part of a prayer you yeah, say exa- every day?
1: Yeah, it was, it's, it's okay. part part of yeah, you know, to try to live my life not by my will but by somebody else's, and you know, I choose to call that person God. But uh, and then when I went back and took a photograph of it, my surname's Murray, mm. it was on the tombstone facing his, and I just thought you could not make this up for one second. And then the really, really crazy part was that later on that day, I got a phone call from one of the people I'm helping in the organisation, and he told me, look, he was with this person and they were really, really sick and they were suicidal, and to then go down and end up in this guy's house. And he needed help, and then to find out that he would have had links to... The similar organization,
0: and like only the divine could plan that to the similar organization that did
1: the, did the shooting.
0: Oh, really? So yeah. you went to go help a fellow alcoholic yes. who formerly belonged to the organization that shot you, exactly. Wow, exactly. And we
1: were sitting there, and like he'd had a couple of drinks and stuff like that. And I was talking to him and, you know, I told him what had happened and I told him about my suicide attempt and he told me that that day that he was just about to uh, uh, jump off his balcony with a uh, vacuum cleaner cable tied around his neck. And we were laughing. You know, just in that moment, it was two human beings talking to one another and he said to me, I can't believe it, that you're that you're here to help me. And I said, look, i says, I got to tell you, that your higher power and my higher power has got some sense of humour, <laughs> that the day I'm up at the grave of somebody tried to kill me, and later on that evening I'm sitting talking to you guy and wanting everything that I've got for you to have. It just blew me away, and, you know, if I didn't believe in God, I certainly believed in him even more that day, and,
0: you know, and like,
1: it just shows you that you can either run around with all that hate in your heart, Or you can get rid of it all and let a little love in and you know, and equally I'm I'm trying to get in contact with the commander of that organisation because he's still alive Mm -hmm. to phone up and make amends to him. And granted I didn't do anything on him, but you know, people can turn around and say, Oh, I forgive that person but unless you tell that person that they're forgiven, well they're not gonna feel the power of God. You know, how can they know unless you go and tell them? And, you know, I, 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 I take that stuff all very seriously now mm-hmm. with a good laugh. Yeah. You know, I have a very good sense of humor about things now, which I didn't because, like, I had such bone crushing depression that, you know,
0: I, I I tried to end my life. I think some people listening to this would say, yes, I would love to not have hate inside me, but how the fuck do I get it out of me because it's in my opinion it's not something you can just say I choose to not have hate in my heart it to me it's a byproduct of some type of spiritual practice or experience or uh, some type of yeah something for me that that was
1: the whole thing that you know I had a choice to make I was either going to be consumed by evil which could have definitely happened to me. It was only when I came into, you know, my recovery group and had to go through, you know, the program and I had to look at myself, which I'd never done and I had to look at all my wrongs and I had to change the way I looked at everything and... You know, to realize that you know, I've done a lot of stupid things through alcohol too. Like, I'm not a violent person, but I I nearly murdered two people. You know, two two people. You know, uh, 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 two partners of mine were uh, you know assaulted. So when you you know when you what do you mean when you say partners? Uh, two two uh, female partners had been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Uh, nearly two exact same things, and.
0: Hold on, I'm unclear. They were assaulted by you? Oh
1: no, gee, no, no, no! By two other men oh, in, in a sexual manner.
0: I see, and and, and you went after them. You yeah, you,
1: yeah, like crazy with alcohol. You know, and I'm not a violent person. So you know, when I had to look at that, you know, and I've made a man amaz- amaz- to these people are one of them, and. You know, and I and I looked at my own life, and you know, it's a, it's a lot easier. And I'm not violent in any way; okay? mm. it's just not part of my nature. Mm. But you know, I, I have been able to see that you know inside me there's a spiritual sickness, so I can then see it more so in other people, mm. and that has given me the ability to forgive other people. When when I looked at my own wrongs in my life. It was a lot, then a lot easier to look at other people, mm-hmm. and everybody's spiritually sick. Mm-hmm. It's at what level you're spiritually sick. Which
0: which part of our path are we on?
1: Yeah, yeah. Y- you know. And there was one time in in, in my early sobriety where, and I was going to drink, and I, I I genuinely think this saved my life. Where there's this there was this woman called Carol, and I was just about to walk out the door and go straight and buy beer, or whatever. And this woman turned around and saved my life by telling me the story, most people might hear this, but most won't, about like, you know, a red Indian was explaining to children about how that there's two wolves inside you, mm-hmm. you know, the white wolf and the black wolf, and they're at war and they're trying to kill each other. And one of the kids says, well, what, what are they? And the white ones love, compassion, friendship, mm-hmm. The dark wolves, hatred, murder—you mm. know—all the negative emotions. Which one wins? The one you feed the most. Well, I heard that, and she then said to me, "Where were you about to go? Which wolf were you about to feed?" And I looked at her, started crying. Says the wrong one. You know. So when you have those small moments that are actually massive moments, you can see that inside each and every one of us, there is good, but there is dark. Yeah. And, you know, the more, you you know, that I can find forgiveness in that, the closer I move to the divine. And, you know, and things that I never, ever, ever thought I would be able to do now have become so much easier. And, you you know, that's the freedom. I, I didn't realize just how sick I was. And when you realise you're pretty sick, then you realise, well, what do I have to do to get better? And, you it's know, good. it just boils down to a really, really, really simple thing. And it's to have constant thought of others, love God's children. And, you, you know, and as soon as i turned that corner, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm not the fucking Dalai Lama like, you know, but. What's the right thing to do what in any it? given moment? Yeah, what would Jesus do? <laughs> you pretty much get your answer pretty quickly. And in my case, it's invariably, fuck me, not what I was about to do. <laughs> you know, and like that that's the other good thing about sobriety. Mm-hmm. I did so many fucking stupid things that I had to drink to do a lot of the things I was going to do. You know, now I don't do all those stupid ass things. I don't have to drink. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a massive freedom from that. And you know you can just
0: life's easier you know can you talk about uh, your experience with uh, ayahuasca if, yeah. you're, if you're comfortable
1: yeah 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 I absolutely am. Uh it was weird what what happened with the ayahuasca the way I would sum it up is is you can lie to your therapist you can <laughs> lie to your doctor you can lie to your sponsor you cannot lie to this stuff once it's inside you mm-hmm. It's inside, yeah, and you're, you're along for the ride. like. But So when he was explaining this to me, I turned around and I said, that's cheating. That sounds like step four and five. I says, but you're doing it that way. But, you know, it was kind of weird because...
0: Because it's essentially a purging of the darkness inside of you. Yeah. Uh, uh, whether it's something you did or things that were yeah, done, done yeah, to you. Yeah,
1: and like... You know, I I was a bit worried because I thought, let should I shouldn't be doing this and stuff like that there. And
0: but it's not done for pleasure. Oof. it's a horrible experience. It, uh, it, it is.
1: It is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But, and there's a but. You, you know, it, it is it is an unbelievable experience. Like I touched the divine, and I would be a pretty spiritual person. It made me more spiritual. Now, it would never replace my fellowship, mm-hmm. but as a complementary thing, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's an unbelievable thing. Like of 200,000 plants in the Amazon, if you take these two plants, one first, then the other one, this happens. And, you know, it's when you have a pharmaceutical industry that is just throwing drugs into people and they're legal, Mm-hmm. And this is illegal, yeah. it does not make any sense because they they haven 't figured out how to control it yet. exactly, of course, <laughs> yes. and you know, but it 's not easy, like it is not something you would take lightly, and if anybody was ever think it 's a recreational drug, yeah, they sure. want to try it and and, and i 've been facetious about that, yeah. like it is something that you would not go into lightly and you know, you like you have to watch your diet for a month before you do it, mm-hmm. and it's a full-on spiritual experience. Like, but
0: I mean, there's you, vomiting. Oh, and there's, there's vomiting, hallucinations, and
1: there's, and and there's diarrhea, okay. and there's. But it's the visions and stuff like that. There. So, so what happened? Uh, I I experienced. I had to relive through the shooting in the office and. The thing that I took out of it was that I had looked for all the answers in all the wrong places, you know, and that that the entire thing, the everything, is just all around love. That love is quite literally the most important thing, you know, and mm. it, it, it try to let it into your life, it'll come in. But if you try to keep it out, it'll keep mm-hmm. keep out. But, you know, that is the, the, the one thing that from doing Ayahuasca that I, I took from it the most, what? is that feeling of love mm-hmm. and, and connectedness and how that we are actually all connected.
0: What do you recall reliving and it, whatever details you're comfortable sharing? It, it, it's
1: hard to explain you know,
0: it, it it's
1: just the fact that how destructive that my behaviours had been towards myself and towards mm-hmm. others and, you know, that there is a divine and that the divine wants the best for you and, you know, that that we make the wrong decisions and that there's forgiveness and you have to forgive yourself and It's an incredibly, incredibly uh, emotional experience. Like, Mm. but you know, and like statistically, like there's your man Gabor uh, that you know the the instances for treating depression Mm. are through the roof. I think it's like eighty percent of people who do it, their depression goes on on the first time of taking it. For class A drugs, that's your cocaine in Mm -hmm. Britain. That's your class A's and your cocaines heroin and vitamins and stuff like the success rates on it are absolutely
0: colossally huge you know and for for uh substance abuse overcoming uh, substance abuse with huge, those huge
1: massively yeah. massively high especially yeah. with cocaine yeah. you know with cocaine you know it's it's incredibly high mm-hmm. you know but for me uh you know it's it, it would never replace my fellowship, mm-hmm. but you know, for me, it's it, for me, it's as I said earlier on, it's it's constant contact with other human beings, and mm-hmm. y- you know, wanting to help people. That that's where my true happiness comes from, and you know mm-hmm. that before I thought it was things like money, power, prestige, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There, it's not. You know, I've had all those
0: things that didn't work, and. So when when you had the ayahuasca experience, were there? You said you relived it. Were there moments that you relived where there was now something that you saw or felt differently in it, or that you had suppressed?
1: Yeah, well, it just it, it just let you look at it and be aware of it, and to be like an outsider looking in at it, and without to, fear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so almost I, like you were
0: watching a a, a movie. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And y- you know the, when I when I tried to kill myself, you know I was able to see that as well, and uh, y- just y- loads of different things. You know the the ayahuasca for somebody who is like suffering depression and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like I really would recommend it. You know,
0: mm-hmm. and. And from what I understand, it's really, really important that you do it with somebody who is credible and Absolutely, and I don't know how you find yeah well, who those people are, but um, without any
1: shadow of a doubt, like it, it would be very, very important yes. that the person you're doing it with knows what they're doing. Yes.
0: and I can't speak on ayahuasca because I've never tried it, but people I know and whose opinion I trust. Um, have uh, had success, yeah, with it, it lifting their depression, if not permanently, uh, temporarily. Yeah,
1: yeah, it it is. But now, the one thing I would absolutely say is, if anybody's ever going to do it, mm-hmm. that they have to be incredibly careful. If they happen to be taking antidepressants mm-hmm. and ayahuasca, you cannot take the two things. You know, it is a really, you know, it, it could be life threatening. Like, yeah. When I look at Donald Trump and I have these massive negative feelings towards him, Mm -hmm. but then if I want to be completely and utterly honest, you know, the massively negative parts of his character, I had all of them. Yeah, me too. You know, and that's the thing that, you know, that when you look at the narcissism and stuff like that,
0: Mm -hmm. as
1: a drinking alcoholic, I had all those traits. Yeah,
0: insensitivity. Oh, complete. You know, uh, being a braggart, being insecure, ah, oh, like being a lunatic, needy.
1: like a lunatic. Yeah, and that's that's why I <laughs> criticise him. But you know, got to be you. Know, that's what I'm saying about it. It's, it's when you
0: see traits and you go, "That was so me." Yes. But you and I were smart enough to not run for president. Definitely, we know we're assholes
1: completely. And if I yes. look at my history... that's where we're better yeah. than him. Yeah, yes. You know, but back in the day, my whole thing would have been you know, to make tons and tons of money. Now, my whole thing is 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 that I really do truly believe that the mobile phone is going to destroy society mm. and that there has to be some control over it. Mm. And before I would have wanted money. Now it's not, you know, because I realize deeply that like us talking to one another and being able to look at each other's eyes and stuff like that, that's where it is.
0: I'm looking through you, just for the record.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yes, yes. That, yes. Uh, and like, you know, now what we've become, everybody, we're walking around looking at our hands. Mm-hmm. And if I, if you walk into a restaurant now and you look around, everybody is sitting staring at their hand. So if, as, as people who have taken drugs and alcohol, if I was to sell somebody a drug that it made you just look at your hand, you would say there is no way I'm taking that. Mm-hmm. But there we are, all fucking dopamine crazy, mm-hmm. looking at our hands, looking for the likes and stuff like mm-hmm. that there and you know, that's the bit for me where you know, it's just helping other people and helping other people I'm helping myself. There ain't
0: no losers. It's a it's a beautiful thing. Well, James, thanks thanks so much for sharing your story and uh being my uh, my short-term pal here in uh in yeah. belfast it's uh you know in my in my opinion it was no accident that our paths crossed no, last night i don't think so yes bro. and i love too that it was in a Protestant area yeah shank hill road yeah who yeah. knew
1: who, yeah, i was United afraid run. to
0: go there and i had one of the most beautiful experiences of my life yeah it was class that just shows how much i know <laughs> All right. thanks buddy thanks many many thanks to to james um before we take it out with some uh really good surveys I want to tell you guys about one of our sponsors the podcast called I love you but I hate your politics. Uh you you've had that deal happen on Facebook somebody uh, from your life you know maybe you knew him from college or your hometown and you like him but You really, really despise their politics, and you don't really know what to do. Do I call them on it? Do I want to get into a drawn-out battle? Do I unfriend them? What What do you do? Or maybe it's that thing where you're going home for the holidays, and you just don't want to have that argument, but you also can't stand sitting around the table hearing people spout stuff you disagree with. Well, I love you, but I hate your politics is the remedy for all that awkwardness and anxiety. Therapist Jeannie Safer uses her expertise to help couples and friends who care about each other but just can't see eye to eye on political issues. She'll help you find empathy. Did I say empathy? Empathy. And communicate better with your loved ones. So stop unfriending all your cousins. Do unfriend your, your nieces and nephews. They're horrible people. Just find I love you, but I hate your politics wherever you listen to podcasts, and hit subscribe. Also, hit subscribe for this podcast. Uh, It is a great way to help out. That costs you uh, nothing other than a a click, the calories of uh, clicking with your thumb or index finger. Maybe you use a middle finger. That'd be a really passive-aggressive way to subscribe to the podcast. Click on it with your middle finger. Um, I want to read an email that I got that I suppose is half email, half uh, me asking you to help the show and it's from Carolyn, and she writes, "Uh, Hi Paul, I wanted to send you some love and say thank you for the podcast. It's amazing and beautiful. It's been so very helpful. I also wanted to send you some love for moving the back catalog to Stitcher Premium. I've been listening to the podcast, and it seems like you've been getting some hate lately for moving the back catalog, so I thought I would write in to tell you how much I am freaking lover freaking loving Stitcher Premium. I work a boring desk job and have anxiety and depression as a result of complex PTSD. My mind has a tendency to quickly wander to the darkest of places and I distract myself with podcasts and audiobooks. I've been using Stitcher Premium to keep my mind busy, and I'm especially loving the stand-up comedy albums. I'm a newish listener to the show, and I'm now getting to listen to the older episodes for the first time. I just listened to the Maria Bamford episode, and also to the episode where you get interviewed and really enjoyed both of them. Anyway, I will stop rambling, but I just wanted to say thanks for the podcast, it's helped me feel less alone. I am at the beginning of my healing journey and listening to you and your guests gives me hope for my future and my ability to heal. Thanks for everything, Carolyn. And uh, thank you uh, so much for saying that. And some of the other guests that you can uh, listen to on Stitcher Premium, uh, Tiffany Haddish, Mark Marin, Melissa Villasenor, um, NHL legend Theo Fleury. Aisha Tyler, Scott Thompson, Catherine Hahn, Nikki Glaser, Rob Delaney, Paul F. Tompkins, tons of great therapists, authors like Dr. Ellen Sachs, who wrote The Center Cannot Hold, uh, Caitlin uh, Doty, all kinds, of, all kinds of great, great guests. And um, when you do sign up for Stitcher Premium, um, use the link through our website uh, or... Uh, make sure that you, when you sign up, you let them know that you came from our podcast. Otherwise, it's it defeats the purpose of uh, uh, helping this show because I won't get credit for it and I won't get uh, any money for it. And that's the whole reason I had to move it is to to keep the show going because uh, financially we need we need help. And I've listed a whole bunch of ways that you can help the show out, both financially and non-financially. It's in the show notes of all the recent episodes, so um, go do that. Let's get to some surveys. This one is a psych ward experience filled out by uh, Squeak, and she was hospitalized for bulimia and borderline personality disorder. And she writes, I was there for six months. It helped a lot, but I left too soon in order not to miss too much school. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Squeak is, uh, gender fluid. Apologize for that. Um, is there a social justice warrior that's going to shame me now for doing that? Um, this is an awful some moment filled out by sad Kathy who writes, uh, Lying in my bed on a Friday night with all the lights off, pretending I'm not home, thinking about how lonely I am and how much everyone hates me, while all my floor mates are pounding on my dorm room door trying to get me to hang out with them. Boy, in a nutshell, that is the disconnect between the mental and the emotional. Understanding people that, you know, the people want to be hanging out with us, but emotionally, just that, that foggy, brick wall that keeps us from doing something Uh, this was filled out by Dan and it's a psych ward experience survey Uh, he was hospitalized for a variety of things uh, over many occasions three different occasions uh, psychosis seizures uh, insomnia and PTSD Uh, one sentence describe your experience as a patient or visitor Uh, I have been badly abused in a lot of hospitals Um, this was filled out by Looney Tunes, uh, and he writes, uh, at 10, I was court-ordered to be in the mental hospital after a failed suicide attempt and attempting to stab my father and sister. It was a safe place where I wasn't being abused. It was helpful. I think it stopped me from wanting to die. I just needed to rest. At 10, I can't even imagine what that home life was like. At 22, he was hospitalized for a failed suicide attempt. He writes, it was a safe three days, but was not helpful. And at 27, brought by the police after cutting himself at a park. And he writes, it was helpful. It helped me to get my medication straight. Thank you for that. And that kind of, in a nutshell, almost encapsulates the variety of uh, you know, probably about three quarters of the experiences that I read about, the people have uh, shared on this survey. Uh, teenage love killed me inside. Uh, who was gender fluid? Uh, was hospitalized for. Uh, I'll just read it. I was I was hospitalized hospitalized for trying to kill myself. I took my sister's entire bottle of Zoloft, then got scared and called nine one one and was admitted to my local hospital. I was 15 years old. I was the youngest person in this mental ward. The lady that was closest to my age was 69. I spent a few days in bed with the shakes and then sat in the living room and watched TV for the rest of my time there. There were no organized groups. There was a phone that was free to use and call anyone we wanted. I spent most of my time on the phone talking to the boyfriend that I had who caused me to want to kill myself. He was abusive mental and physical, and of course, now, he was fucking sorry. So I missed him so fucking much. Wish I would tell that younger person she was an idiot, to hang up that phone and talk about what I was actually feeling inside, instead of trying to hide it all. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by mermaids stranded on land, and just two Two brief, uh, awfulsome moments from her life. Uh, when my friend found out she was pregnant, I offered to throw her down the stairs. Just so fucked up. Uh, and then, uh, I didn't speak until I was three. My first sentence that anyone in the family remembers was me saying, you hurt my feelings. Fuck. God. Yeah, I... Never ceases to amaze me, the shit that I read. This was filled out by, uh, it's a psych ward experience survey filled out by Alley Cat. And uh, I was hospitalized, quote, voluntarily by my parents when I was 19. I had suffered with severe anxiety and depression since middle school. When I went to college, I sought out help by going to therapy and eventually seeing a psychiatrist. About six months after seeking treatment and feeling worse than I did before, I started relying heavily on marijuana and synthetic marijuana. My parents found out and freaked out. They moved me back to my hometown, and the next day insisted I go into the hospital. I was, at this point, in a complete mental breakdown. I was admitted under suicidal ideation. My experience was traumatizing, not necessarily due to the hospital itself, but more of the situation. One day, I was a college student, and 24 hours... Uh, Later, my entire life had flipped and I was in the psych ward. I was scared and did not feel like I belonged. They misdiagnosed me uh, as bipolar 2 disorder, but I now learned I have major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and panic disorder. With the exception of one psychiatric technician who did everything to take care of us and cheer us up, everyone else seemed exhausted. I had a full-blown panic attack and only the other patients helped me. To this day, about five years later, I still have nightmares of my experience. I think hospitals are extremely helpful for those who need to be monitored and get on a healthy schedule. But I think we need to invest more in having a more loving community for those struggling with mental illness so it doesn't have to resort to hospitalization. A-fucking-men. Amen. Thank you for expressing uh, so eloquently what so many people experience. And I think one of the most important things that you shared is the sentence, with the exception of one psychiatric technician who did everything to take care of us and cheer us up, everyone else seemed exhausted. There has to be some type of change with that. You have people who are at the lowest moment in their life, And having people who are exhausted and short with them is traumatizing. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself BB. She's straight in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say more than pretty dysfunctional. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? My counselor and I talk about what my alcoholic father had done to me around age four. I'm not sure if it was rape or molestation, but it definitely was of a sexual nature. How I feel about it is even worse. I'm flattered that my dad gave me any attention before leaving us for another family. And sadly, that is not uncommon. And I think predators know that. They see the neediness in the eyes of a potential victim. And whether it's conscious or not on their part, um, it is sadly one of the things that um, they exploit. And I I just want to say to any parents out there that think, you know, working 80 hours a week when your family could be getting by with you working 40 hours a week. You know, one of the prices of that extra 80 hours a week to have the summer home or the boat or whatever cliche you want to talk about is you, you are putting your child in danger for seeking love elsewhere without guidance. And that's not to say it's your fault, but That is something that should be on your radar. Um, She's also been physically and emotionally abused. My mom has borderline personality disorder and was very self-centered. My grandma told me as I was learning to walk, my mother would push me over if I was in her way. She told me to shut up so many times I didn't speak for the first five years of my life after that. To put us, my siblings and I, in a helpless state She'd sit on us and tickle us until we hurt, until it hurt, and we were crying in fear. She laughed. Uh, any positive experiences? I won't ever put myself in a situation to be abused, and if I was, I would confidently leave. Um, darkest thoughts. I dream about child sex abuse often. Most times I wake up in the middle of an orgasm over these children being molested. I don't mind the dreams, even though I hate that i don't mind them darkest secrets one time i was scrolling through tumblr and came across a page dedicated to child porn i couldn't look away and stayed on it for over an hour i am grossed out by it yet also fascinated sexual fantasy is most powerful to you child sex abuse i feel ill about it what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to I want to tell the younger me that it's a lot easier to blow through 11 grand than you think. (laughs) What if anything do you wish for? I wish my husband will take me back after cheating on him over and over. I can't prove I won't again. I'm not even sure I won't. Maybe I'm just that self-centered. And, you know, my thought on that is that that is one of the most common things for people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse, be it covert or overt. And that, you know, ultimately, it's not about the sex or the acting out. It's about a fear of intimacy and wanting to be seen or validated, but in a way where we don't give up control. And in the end, that is a self-defeating, destructive, not only to us, but especially to other people, a destructive way to go through through life and um, I really encourage you to go talk to a therapist about this and find a support group for um, incest survivors or uh, sex addiction or sex and love addiction there's all kinds of good support groups Um, have you have you shared but you know shaming yourself is not going to make you um, heal it's re-establishing human connection with people that are trustworthy and feeling validated in a non-sexual environment first. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I have corrupt friends and a family who is always on my side. They support me with whatever happens. It's kind of weird, really. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like a disgusting person. Um, you are not a disgusting person. You are a wounded person who is worthy of love and affection and intimacy, but it's going to take some work on your part to get there. It's just not going to magically appear in the form of another person. And that's one of the illusions that so many people with intimacy disorders never discover the truth about is they think their salvation lies in another person's, um, you know, a single person saving them. And I've, I've never seen that. I've never seen a single person be able to heal someone's deep trauma. Um, it, in my experience, it takes a network of people, especially people who've experienced similar things. And therapy, obviously, as well, because having a professional person guide us through that is huge. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just because you have inappropriate thoughts of children that you can't control does not mean you have any desire to act anything out in person. Very true. Very true. Um, shame is one of the things that continues the cycle of addiction. And um, there's a great book by John Bradshaw called Healing the Shame that Binds. And I encourage anybody who is struggling with any kind of addiction to, to read it because shame is the gasoline. Shame and fear, in my experience, are the things that addictions run on uh this is an awful moment filled out by uh l and z and he writes um before the fourth date that l and i had she texted me that she had some very important things to tell me that would make me not want to be with her i took this at first i took this well at first and then because of my anxiety i started thinking of every possible scenario that it could possibly be my brain flooded from everything from first-degree murder to a sex charge to cheating to STDs. I spent the whole day exhausting myself over what the possibility could be. When the time for the date came, I was already mentally exhausted. So we got to our table, ordered some appetizers. What appetizer do you order for impending doom? Egg rolls? Potstickers? I figured it was time to rip off the the proverbial band-aid. I asked her what could be so bad that she thinks I would dump her over. That's when she told me about her history of body image issues, depression, and anxiety. At that moment, I felt like I released the biggest sigh ever. She was struggling with the same issues I had. We spent a long time talking to each other about our issues and really enjoying each other's company. It was even more emphasized by the fact that our waitress came over and said it was refreshing to see a young couple engaging in conversation and not constantly checking their phones. Needless to say, I've fallen madly head over heels with this woman, and I do feel that that was in part due to us being able to openly talk about the struggles we've endured. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And I hope you got the pot stickers. Uh, this is a psych ward experience filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Who Knew Hospital Cafeterias Aren't Vegan Friendly. Uh, she was uh, admitted herself to the hospital. Uh, my admission was to a voluntary inpatient mood disorder wing in my local hospital. I wasn't, quote, suicidal, or at least I didn't have intent. What I had been was functionally but severely depressed. But I was running, meditating, going to work, and socializing, so I couldn't be depressed, right? I had also been wishing for a revision of history where I hadn't survived several brushes with cardiac death. Ironically, this is also the reason I can never really be suicidal. I fought too damn hard to be alive to consider killing myself now. This was the third time in as many months that my car and I made it to the parking lot of the Behavioral Health Hospital. The previous time, I had told my partner that I was in the midst of activated trauma and I was considering admitting myself he gave me sound advice. Call my previous therapist, not my current one because she really wasn't working for me, which I did from the parking lot. She was amazing and she helped walk me through uh, reaching out to my general practice physician to increase the dose of my antidepressants. Uh, And then parentheses. Yeah, no psychiatrist. Bad idea, folks and asked me to send her a list of therapists covered under my insurance. I did both, and by the following day, I had both changes underway and felt much calmer. The third trip to the parking lot, I arrived knowing I needed to be there. I had my first EMDR session that week and had finally begun both feeling and labeling what happened to me in my childhood as abuse. Physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. The month leading up to my hospitalization, I'd been very, very emotional. My trauma was easily activated, and my go-to methods of self-soothing were working, cleaning, and engaging in my studio art practice, but they weren't working. So when I got activated this time, I knew it was time to really get help. When I had called my former therapist previous to this, her advice had been, if you feel you need to go there, if you feel you need to be there, go in. Inpatient can be really helpful, and sometimes it can do more harm. I went in, and, and sadly, that's the truth, but I w- in, went in knowing the stories that folks have shared on your podcast. Maria Bamford's, they took my shoelaces, was on a loop in my head. Uh, because so was the line, yeah, I just surrendered. Although I can't remember now which guest of yours uh, that line belongs to. Um, I can't remember either. Who that belongs to it might have been jim o'brien i can't remember uh describe your experience well to use their words i surrendered and i'm really glad i did i spent four hours in the er before i was admitted and i cried like a baby the whole time and it felt amazing i didn't expect that it's very hard for me to be in my body and to feel my emotions I also didn't expect to be treated with compassion, but I was. I honestly didn't even expect to be asked to talk, let alone be heard. I'm exceptionally good at subverting efforts to have me be the one to talk, but I did talk and I was listened to. I knew this was a behavioral health hospital, but I still didn't expect that. I could go on and on about the experience. But I'll abbreviate and just say, I genuinely recommend this hospital. Um, and here's the thing that I've noticed from reading hundreds of these surveys is that there seem to be two different types of hospitals. There seem to be the county hospitals where they are kind of a last-ditch place to keep someone safe. And there, it tends to be kind of like, for lack of a better word, holding pen to keep people out of danger but there is a lot of burnout on part of the staff and not a lot of thought um or funding to go into helping patients to have a game plan for when they leave and to give them attention and compassion while they're in there um The unit I was admitted to is a voluntary locked unit for mood disorders with only 10 beds. They laid the rules out for me before they asked me whether I chose to be admitted, including the fact that if you act out violently on the floor and damage a person or property, you're liable for that damage. They also explained that the real benefit that most people find is in group, which meets three times a day, and while no one will force you, it's strongly advised that you go. I was admitted, and I went. I also didn't hold anything back. If it came through my head, it came out and I was asked, hopefully somewhat more organized. Uh, When I was asked, hopefully somewhat more organized. I learned I knew the steps I needed to take uh, better than I thought and that it felt good to be trusted to take them. I was able to go home after two days with an appointment with a psychiatrist to monitor my meds and an initial consult for a dialectical behavioral outpatient program. Now we come to the part post-hospitalization where, as you say, Paul, the universe gave me a big hug. Tonight, I was practicing self-care while my partner is traveling by puttering around uh, in the kitchen and by re-listening to previous episodes of the podcast uh, I tell everyone I know about. Uh, the episode number 337, Raised in Repression and Borderline Personality Disorder, with Anne from Berlin. Love Anne. I first listened to it the week you released it and I told my uh, therapist about the episode because although my cultural and social experience is much different than Anne's, I related so deeply to her experience of not being able to decipher and trust her own intuition of repression and neglect And of the related maladaption of being so attuned to others' moods, needs, and emotions that you don't know how to tune into your own. Paul, as I was listening to you read the surveys, at the end, I was shocked to hear one that sounded intimately familiar to me my own. I must have filled it out some months earlier, because the upcoming exhibition I talked about in the survey. Oblivion had opened three months earlier in March 2017. I'd completely forgotten about submitting it, although that was an important beginning of my talking openly to my therapists and my partner about what I now know was childhood sexual abuse. I was so touched to hear you read what I wrote and to read it closely like a friend would. It also gave me the same kind of validated thrill that I got when my therapist said the same thing that you felt angry at my parents after reading my survey and my experience. That felt really good. So thank you, Paul. I am doing just what you advised when you addressed my survey. I'm talking to my therapist about those experiences and doing the work of recovery. I'm at that stage in therapy now where I'm working on getting angry on my own behalf and hearing other people are angry for me is healing beyond words. Wow. You made my day. You made my day. Thank you for that. And shout out to Anne from Berlin. She has been um, a supporter of uh, this show both um, in every way you can you can imagine uh, for for years, and just a beautiful soul. I have one more psych ward experience survey and an awful some moment left and this is the psych ward experience survey filled out by um, bats can fly and she writes uh, I was hospitalized uh, in the spring of 2017 after trying to kill myself with a plastic bag I was living on my own for the first time, but it was going horribly. I wasn't happy living with my parents because my mom is abusive towards my dad, both verbally and sometimes physically, and she has been abusive towards my sister and I verbally. I have severe social anxiety, agoraphobia, depression, and I'm pretty sure I have complex PTSD from years of being bullied at school. I'm unable to work in customer service due to panic attacks, and instead I can't imagine a worse job for someone with PTSD than customer service. Oh my God. Uh, And I instead do freelance art. I'm also on disability, which I feel guilty about because I don't feel like I deserve to be on it. I was put on the subsidized housing program and found an apartment that I thought would be good. When I got there, I immediately started having problems with the lack of sound insulation and the neighbor's angry teenage son. When I first got there, He was getting into his car, and his mom was barbecuing chicken on the veranda, and she said to me, that's my son. He's an asshole. (laughs) It is so fucking easy to picture that, (laughs) Uh, which seemed like a red flag that this family had issues. Uh, Shortly after moving in, I became acquainted with the boy's problems. He threw a temper tantrum once a week, banged on my door, scowled, and swore at me, between that, I'd hear him saying horrible things through the walls like, ugly fucking slut, and it upset me even if it wasn't directed towards me. I became constantly tense and felt like crying all the time. I resorted to wearing headphones and having white noise on in the background at all times to drown him out. He would do regular teenage things like have the occasional rowdy get-together with his friends, but I would have panic attacks and experience auditory halluc- uh hallucinations like rain outside, uh, turning into him outside my window saying F you over and over. I felt like I was in high school again. I've done online research and determined that I was dealing with hypervigilance, always on alert for some type of attack, and emotional flashbacks. I also think the boy was an asshole, and I don't think it helped the situation. It was a horribly negative place to be. I wasn't happy at this new apartment and didn't want to move back in with my parents, so I tried to kill myself. I put a bag over my head and cut myself. I am ashamed of myself for being hurt by a person younger than me, but I am pretty sensitive. I haven't found a therapist yet who helps patients with trauma, so stuff that is said to me now won't hurt any less than it did when I was 14. Describe your experience. Being hospitalized didn't help resolve my problems. The ward was mixed, both male and female, and had a broad spectrum of patients from schizophrenia and eating disorder to drug addicts. Uh, I was bullied by one of the male patients there who called me a pig and made oinking noises at me. I was afraid to leave my room uh, most of the time because I didn't want to deal with that. As a result, I never got counseling there because you had to go see the counselor yourself. They would not come to you if they didn't If you didn't want to leave the room they also had group therapy which i only attended once before the boy there bullied me Uh, there was also a guy who'd been in there for weeks pacing up and down the halls and he would call me a bitch and say he hated me every time he saw me Uh, it wasn't entirely awful i did get along with other patients there and they took us out for walks every morning if the weather was nice the nurses there were all really nice and i didn't have any problems with them I didn't enjoy sharing my room with the roommate I had. She was a bit older than me and did a lot of things that were, uh, to me, that were insufferable. Putting all her stuff on my desk, insulting my sister's name, sitting on her desk, facing me for long periods of time, but I was too socially anxious to speak up and just blocked her out as much as I could by reading The Girl on the Train from the small bookshelf in the TV room. There was a guy there with a mental disability who was extremely sweet and had an infectious laugh. His thick glasses made his eyes look huge, so he altogether was like a kid there and you couldn't help uh, loving him. He was really good at needlepoint and made beautiful detailed art on cloth. There were older adults there up to their 50s who almost felt like parent figures to me while I was there. I just felt really safe around them. The older man there had tried to kill himself, but had been there for a while and was doing better when I got there. He said a lot of really supportive things to me about my art and empathized with me about school bullying, which he dealt with himself as a child. The older woman there uh, had severe depression and OCD and tried to kill herself by stabbing herself in the chest. She had cut her wrists. As horrible as her situation was, I felt comforted to see that there was an older person there with the same problem I had. There were two senior women there, one who I believe had schizophrenia and played the exact same tune on the piano like the ending of a song several times every day. She was very religious and also very friendly. The old other older lady there was bone thin and was inconsolable over the loss of her husband. Three major things that happened while I was there. One, when I first arrived, I was placed in the triage of the hospital where they do a quick assessment to determine whether you need to or want to go to the psych ward. The rooms had porthole windows on the doors. They only had awful movies to choose from that played on the tiny wall TV above the nurse's station. I stayed there for one night before going inpatient. My stomach felt uneasy and they gave me a pill to help me sleep. I woke up once in the middle of the night to a door flying open in the hallway and the sound of a girl hyperventilating and screaming, "'Don't touch me! No!' and the sound of more scuffling before she went silent. Two. A boy or young man there in his early 20s was in the triage with me, and I talked to him for a bit. We ended up in the same psych ward, and he started flirting with me, saying I looked beautiful and offering me books he had— He would ask to come into my room a lot and I'd let him in and we'd talk, but I wasn't interested and was regretting ever having spoken to him. I didn't know how to tell him no after he asked me about dating him, so I told him I was asexual and he told me I was just confused. I've known for a long time I am asexual, having never had an interest in sex or any idea what sexual attraction feels like. I wasn't confused, but I regretted telling him because now I was sure he thought I was just trying to deter him or something. He had a I-can-make-you-straight kind of mindset and tried to kiss me. I gently told him no and guided him out the door, which I am very proud of because he didn't try it again. Three, my family came to visit me a couple of times, and I was allowed, allowed to see them for four hours per visit. At one point, it was just my sister who came to see me, and she is one of my best friends. We were extremely close, and I was so happy to see her. We went to the city park and walked around for a while. It was beautiful and sunny. There was a bench facing the water, and we sat there with some ducks sleeping on the grass nearby and some people playing chess. We sat there in silence for a while, listening to the wind in the trees and on the water. We had lunch at a restaurant, then walked the opposite way through the park into a cemetery where we sat on the thick grass facing the water. The cemetery was beautiful and peaceful, and we agreed that there's nothing scary about them. My sister visiting me and taking me out was the most refreshing and therapeutic thing that happened to me for the whole time I was there. The lack of freedom in the psych ward was the worst thing, and I quickly started to hate being there. I lied to the psychiatrist that I was feeling much better, even though I was definitely suicidally depressed. And 10 days later, after I was admitted, I was finally discharged. Being hospitalized wasn't helpful, as I found being there very stressful. But I am much more appreciative of not being compassionately incarcerated. Thank you so much for that. Boy, you just painted some incredible pictures of of your stay there. And that's one of the things that I love about these surveys is they're like little movies um, for me. And uh, finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Paul Gilmartin. (laughs) And he writes, First off, I just use your name to ensure you'd read this, you goddamn narcissist. I have had people use my name in surveys before that I didn't read. So... That's not why I'm reading it, but it is a nice perk. A few weeks ago, my ex and I broke up. It was really great as far as breakups go. We had our talk, which was open and honest, but still compassionate. We then walked through a park for a couple of hours, asking one another the personal questions we'd never had the courage to ask in our two years together. It ended up being the most intimate conversation of our relationship, and we were both so pleased with our awesome breakup skills that we even had lunch together. Skipped it to two weeks later. We haven't been in contact at all. My anxiety, depression, and self-hate start convincing me that she was lying all along about her reasons for breaking up. My mind started saying that she was just sick of me, had found someone better, and just didn't have the heart to tell me. Around this time, I remembered that I know her Twitter handle, She doesn't know I even have an account, let alone know that I know hers, but I needed to find the truth. I found a single tweet referencing me. In it, she expressed how overwhelming her life was at the moment and that she needed someone to talk to, that this person to confide in had once been her boyfriend, and it was now hitting her that she'd lost not only a great partner, but a close friend. I'd been searching for something to confirm and an imaginary betrayal and found this instead. And now I'm just sitting here feeling like a total frosted Pop-Tart. You are an unfrosted Pop-Tart. You just think you're a frosted Pop-Tart. I had a delicious, delicious... Actually, I, I've been having... Uh, unfrosted Pop-Tarts every night. And shout out to the listeners that uh, send me unfrosted blueberry Pop-Tarts because we can't get them here on the West Coast. And it's hard to even get unfrosted strawberry, which uh, is just insulting. That's just insulting. But um, last night, I I went into the kitchen. It was like 3 in the morning, and it was completely dark. And I was like, yeah, I can toast these up in the dark. I know what I'm doing. Cut to My beautiful frosted Pop-Tart sliding off the plate, landing on the floor, and me picking it up and not even hesitating to eat it. That's how good it perfectly... Because it has to be toasted just right. And it has to be just starting to burn. And you also have to have a short glass with a wide mouth filled with milk that you dunk the pop tart into while it's burning hot and it's i don't know if heaven exists but i know that's what would greet you as you walk through the gate i'm assuming if heaven exists it has a gate because i do believe in cliches anyway i hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you everyone that that helps keep this show going and and um yeah. I'm just so grateful and um if you're feeling alone, um that's a lie that your mind is telling you because we're not alone. We are all connected. And that's the most important thing to remember, you know. Like James said in the interview, this is about love. And it's so hard in this fucked up world where there are places where it feels like there's no love at all to um, to feel it. But sometimes I think to myself, well, maybe I should be the person to generate some love in this situation. And um, I say that because I want to look good. And that's what I want to end the podcast with is... Me putting myself up on a pedestal and grandstanding because my name is Paul Gilmartin and I am a goddamn narcissist. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.